Hello and welcome to The Last ND, a board game podcast coming to you from several thrilling countries across Europe and America. I am joined here today by Audrey. Hi everyone! Alexis, who's actually still stuck in dinner. And I'm your host, Kara. Today, no fan for you, I'm very sorry. And we are going to be talking with our special guest, Brenna Asplund from Red Raven Games. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. So, uh, before we get into the interview part, let's just play a little catch up. So, Audrey, what have you been up to? Um, not a lot. I'm still stuck in the job search uh, stuff. But uh, last weekend with my husband, we played our first game of Terraforming Mars, uh, which we bought uh, just a few weeks, maybe just a week ago. And uh, I liked the game. Uh, it, it's exactly uh, in the range of games that I like, with not too much interaction between players and still you have to think of mechanics and I think I will need at some point something still in that range, but heavier. I think we might ask uh, Alexis what he did recently, but he's not there. So what did you do recently, Kara? Um, I um, don't remember right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, wait, so I did play a couple games. Um, I'm actually trying to remember the name of a card game I've played. It was like a deck building game, which uh, whose, whose main feature was that all the cards were transparent plastic and mm -hmm. you, you could basically build cards. So you had, they were sleeved and um, each card had like a bottom, middle and top section and um, you could buy additional card parts basically and put them in sleeves and thereby create better cards. Um, which... so, so like canvas, but you're doing mechanics instead of pictures. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then just, you know, a deck building game, you draw a certain number of cards, do stuff with them, discard them, draw the next cards until your deck runs out and you resh reshuffle. Yeah. You reshuffle. And, um, yeah, so it was kind of interesting. Um, I did feel kind of bad having all this plastic in my hand. Um, and I, I've, I felt like the idea is more interesting than the outcome in the end. Like, okay, you still have a deck builder, so. And um, yeah, apart from that, I played the Isle of Cats roll and write. Now it's a explore and draw. Like, yeah. Um, so the, the small version of it, which was kind of fun. And I think it's a great alternative for people who don't want to pay as much or don't have a, have a lot of time. Like solo play with setup, uh, reading the rules, uh, playing and teardown takes an hour. So that's, that's nice. And I actually played a, a game that finally arrived after it was lost in, uh, in the, oh, the global I shipping think I hell. Know the one. <laughs> <laughs> um, for like over a month, it was lost somewhere in the channel between Europe and uh, UK. Uh, now or never, which is very fitting 
because of Brenner. <laughs> yeah, hooray! <laughs> um, Very fitting due to the time it took to get to you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you for your help with that. Though it still took a long time because DPD is a weird shipping company. Yeah, no, it can be uh, tough to get that international shipping to work. There's frequently so many issues. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad we could finally get that resolved for you. Yeah. So anyway, Brenna, what have you been up to? Um, I have mostly just been up to playtesting for Red Raven stuff. I haven't had a chance recently to play many games other than that. I did recently purchase Railroad Ink Challenge, which is like a a railway themed roll and write game that I haven't actually yeah. had a chance to break it out yet, but we, we talked about it uh, a few episodes back. Oh yeah, what did you yeah. guys think of it? Uh, yeah, we, 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 it was an episode about uh, roll and write and flip and uh, roll and flip uh, in general. But I do have railroading, and I thought it was quite funny. But you you have lots of things to remember on your board, and that was interesting. Ah uh, yeah yeah, I I just enjoy roll and write as a mechanic yeah. so that's why I figured I'd check it out so. <laughs> yeah for me it was actually I mean I think it's a fine game but um, it, it kind of doesn't have enough player interaction for me that's like, fair uh, yeah so anyway continue continue oh I think that was all I was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I think the game I most recently played was actually I mean again just a play test of uh our upcoming game that's a sequel to Sleeping Gods. So we, I uh, played Distant Skies recently, which I can't reveal too much about yet, but I enjoyed <laughs> greatly. So. <laughs> All right, I think we are touching on the interview part already. <laughs> yeah, we'll um, so um, yeah, let's just start with that. So Brenner, you are working for Red Raven Games. Can you just, you know, tell people what is it you actually do um, apart from playtesting Distant Skies? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working for Red Raven Games since 2016. So I've been with the company for a while now. And we're such a s small company. Like, there's only two of us who technically work full time for the company, which is me and the designer, Ryan Lockett. Uh, and so I wear a lot of hats. I do a lot of um, customer service through email. I do a lot of logistics management, shipping stuff, uh, running crowdfunding campaigns, uh, and <laughs> sorry. And I even do a lot of like play testing, and I get to do creative writing for the story storybook games. So stuff like uh, Near and Far, Sleeping Gods. Uh, now or never you can see my writing in there which was a big part of why i actually took this job was i was excited to be able to get to do fun writing stuff for it and i actually had to write a brief encounter as part of my interview process which actually is in the final version of near and far that story that i wrote so that's kind of fun and plus you know also lots of proofreading and editing and sometimes a small amount of graphic design like anything ryan needs me to do i'll do basically <laughs> now i'm really curious do, do you know which encounter it is <laughs> i don't know the number of it off the top of my head it involves a, a bird folk person wanting to return a book 
to a uh, robot whose legs has have rusted out from under it. It sounds familiar, actually. So yeah, maybe I encountered it actually. Yeah, I may I may cool. have to look up what number that is later. Now that I thought about it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, 2016, you said. So, um, what was the first game you um, helped with? So it was actually near and far. That was in development when I joined the company. Uh, I actually did also play test that game during my interview, also. So <laughs> that was very actively being worked on when I joined the company. Uh, I also actually helped with the Kickstarter fulfillment for Islebound. Like that was happening just as I joined. So I did a lot of the um, shipping coordination for that. I started on that game for that aspect of the job. But as far as like play testing and consulting and doing writing and editing and stuff, Near and Far was my first game that I was involved in. Okay, so um, it sounds like you're doing a lot of very different tasks. Oh, yes. Um, what it is you actually you actually train for, or um, I'm missing like English words here. What's your background? Yes, yes, yes. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a bachelor's degree in English, just like English literature from the University of Utah. So that was that was my training, uh, and basically about a year after I graduated is when I joined the company. So other than that. Uh, it's it's funny because it does sound like not really exactly training for this job specifically, but it is connected to how I got this job because uh, one of my professors was actually Alf Siegert, who you may be familiar as a game designer. He was uh, the designer of the game Dingo's Dreams and Haven that Red Raven published, as well as a few different games published by different companies and so it was through my connection to him like knowing him uh, and he knew ryan already and so when ryan wanted to hire someone he knew i had just graduated and he was like oh you should apply for this job brenna and he was like ryan you should hire this person so that's that worked out in my favor <laughs> yeah sounds like Net networking yep it's very important so um God, I have so many different questions. Um, yeah, I have to admit, Kara has so many questions, but I've only played above and below, and you weren't uh, part of the company <laughs> then. <laughs> nope, although I do know some interesting trivia about above and below. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, which is just, you guys may have noticed this already, but uh, something that, again, also came up in my interview was uh, we met, talked about uh, Terry Pratchett as an author, because I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on the Discworld series. And okay. uh, so Ryan asked me about that because he wanted to tell me that uh, Terry Pratchett, the author himself, has like a cameo. One of the villagers in Above and Below is uh, designed after Terry Pratchett. So. Oh, that's that is tidbit. interesting indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, nice. So um, yeah, I have to reopen my copy someday. Yeah, I, I just yes. thought about that. I figured <laughs> I, I focus on the interview. I'll do it later. <laughs> you'll, um, you'll go track him down. <laughs> so Is it you, um, nope. You, nope. <laughs> actually, I have actually no idea how Terry Pratchett looks like. Oh, there's a hat. Kind of I'm a, sure there's a hat. Yeah, older man with a big white beard, you know. 
Okay. So, um, the way you got into this uh, whole industry is quite unusual, I guess. Um, or maybe it's very usual. Like, m maybe you know something about it. Is it more usual that the way you get into it, you just have some random connection and it happens to work out? Or And how much were you into board games before? I was... Uh... I was actually only kind of a casual board game fan. Like, I always enjoyed, like, I know the cliches of Settlers of Catan and stuff growing up. But I actually didn't know that much about the hobby, like, the modern hobby stuff going on until after I joined the company. And that kind of opened my eyes to the world of board games a little bit. But uh, to answer your question, Kara, I think it kind of is, like, the more common way to get into it, at least for more small company sort of indie companies uh in the board game space frequently if you know someone who runs a board game company or if you have some sort of connection that's how you're gonna end up working for a small board game publisher especially because so many have so few employees and stuff i think it probably would be a little bit difficult to deliberately break into the industry without knowing anyone uh, probably it would be easier with some of the larger companies since they hire more people there's just and more the, jobs and they available. put ads i imagine <laughs> yes and they actually do like will advertise open positions and stuff so that would probably be an easier into the space if you didn't know anyone but uh honestly like even though i had never intended to get into board games I was really excited to get into board games, even though I wasn't a big hobbyist yet. I thought it was, it sounded really interesting and exciting. And especially since it let me use my creative writing skills, which was always something important to me. That was always something I really wanted to do. And so I think if you want to get into board games in general, you should be flexible as to what sort of thing you want to do in board game spaces. Because it might be hard to find a very specific job that you want. But you might be able to, if you are open to anything, like if you can see an opening and jump at it, you might be able to break in that way. Uh, for me, I just wanted to do something that involved writing. Uh, but I was really open-minded and flexible to whatever I could do that involved writing. So when this opportunity came along, I was able to jump on it and uh, I've ended up loving this job. So that's generally my number one piece of advice to people like young people looking for careers or new jobs or things is just decide what's important to you like what specific thing is important to you and then be flexible as to what that might look at look like in the end you know like there's all sorts of jobs you can get that might fit the like one specific priority that you have you know and speaking of entering the board game industry is there any specific advice that you would have for women uh, and that want to work in this industry, which is still quite dominated by uh, men. Yes, it is very male dominated. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, I think it's hard, it's hard to say. I think my biggest piece of advice would just be to be aware of how male dominated it is, which can be kind of uncomfortable in certain scenarios but if you're like prepared for that going in it can be a little bit 
easier to deal with, I suppose. Yeah, I get the gist. Uh, I, I work in the steel industry, so it's a bit... Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I apologize for being a bit late. Hey, Alexis. So, um, maybe we take a short break from the interview and ask Alexis, what have you been up to? How are you? <laughs> I've been doing very good. Uh, just yesterday, I was, uh, received a mage knight from uh, Fen. Um, they offered me the, the game for uh, having edited the podcast for the past year. So I'm very much looking forward to, to try this. Uh, and other than that, uh, not a lot of... Uh, not anything specific to, to point towards. Uh, I hope that everyone else has been doing great otherwise. Yeah. Uh, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So we were just at um, struggles of women in the board game industry. Um, and entering the board game industry in general. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, yeah. No, the, the interesting thing I've noticed in terms of the gender balance is uh i noticed pretty quickly that they're especially like yes extremely male dominated and also a lot of the women who do work in board games are married to a man who works in board games <laughs> that's fairly yeah. common so there's even fewer like single women who work in board games essentially uh so that can feel uh, a little bit intimidating like at conventions and stuff and uh you know, talking to people, but usually, usually people who work in board games are at least fairly friendly. So there's not a lot of overt discrimination against women that I've run into in board gaming spaces. Uh, people aren't like openly hateful and misogynistic the way they are in like, say more video game centered spaces. Or even tabletop RPGs, I guess. Sorry. Yes. No, no, that's true. That is true. Uh, but I think I think part of that is maybe just because the men in board games don't feel super threatened by women yet because there's just so few of us around. <laughs> mm -hmm. But but yeah, so it's it's a little bit more um, under like like under the surface the misogyny in board game spaces. I guess it's a little less overt, but it definitely is still there's like ninety percent men around. <laughs> anywhere you go yeah and and we are lucky to have a few companies which work towards better inclusivity not not only uh, for the gender gap but also um racism issues and gender issues uh everything like uh cephalofer games did with frost Seven or lots of the stuff that we can see in uh many red raven games which are quite gender neutral in many places, uh, etc. And I think that's great. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I love the representation of in, in like the characters, like even like near and far below, if you have these villages, so many different types of people. Um, that's just amazing. And so, so simple to do in the end, like, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, Ryan's always trying to improve our diversity with each new game that we release and, like, representation and stuff. He's always very mindful of that and keeping in, like, when he's uh, doing the art and the characters and stuff, he's always uh, trying to think of, oh, well, how can we make this even more balanced? How can we give more representation to people who are less represented and stuff like that? Um, I'm very excited. This is, again, slightly 
a spoiler, but I am pretty excited for some of the writing I'm doing already for Distance Guys. I'm, I'm currently working on a quest line of a guy going to try to save his husband, so I'm excited to be able to get that representation into the storybook a little bit. So. Yeah, we love husbands. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Looking forward to that then. <laughs> yes, very much. Um, so now actually through this topic, I have this question in my mind. I've watched the um, Crafting Artium documentary. And mm -hmm. um, as you just told us, apart from Ryan, you're basically the only paid full-time employee of Red Raven Games. And um, when I watched this um, documentary, I noticed something that I notice a lot of times when people talk about Red Raven Games, and it's Ryan. Like, yes. Red Raven Games yeah. is Ryan Laukat. And you are actually present in the documentary as well. And it simply says, playtester. I assume that's probably just the editor, like the guy making the documentary, uh, just decided to call me that because it was a bit easier for the role I was playing for the story of the documentary, I guess. Uh, it, the documentary was a little strange anyway, because it like mostly was filmed at the height of the pandemic. So there, I wasn't around in person as much with Ryan and Mallory. So there wasn't as much opportunity for me to appear in the documentary, I guess, mm -hmm. except for that one play test that uh, I was involved in where uh, I was recorded. I actually haven't watched the final edit of the documentary, although I've, I've heard tell that I got a little bit of a villain cut because I made Ryan want to give up on the game for a minute. <laughs> true, true. I was so harsh with my feedback on the play test. But... So ba basically when you, you were asked, well, you participated to the documentary with the playtester's hat. Yep. It, it was more of a framing purposes then. Yes, yeah, basically. I was more or less aware of how that was going to be framed, so I was I was fine with that. I think that's uh, my role with the company tends to be a bit more under the radar, but um, I'm fine with that. You know, you got to sell the auteur narrative a little bit, right, to help build the brand. <laughs> and also, yeah. not everyone wants to be under the spotlight. That's true. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm happy with uh, my role the way it is, you know. That's what matters, I would say. Yes. But I also, personally I... definitely... Sorry? Oh, I was just going to say also, I think it's really funny that I'm the villain of the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't really seem like a villain to me. That's good. So. That's good. <laughs> so, yeah, so I personally definitely will try to take care of not calling Red Raven Games, games, Ryan Laukett games in the future. Yes. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> something I've actually done in the past, you know, but... Um... Yes. No, I, I do also find it funny when I see people online, like, calling Ryan a, a one-man band and stuff, and I'm like, there, there are two men in this band, but, you know... <laughs> I, I don't so, mind so much. It's just amusing to me. Yeah, but yeah, actually, you, you have a puppet master in the shadows, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in some ways, no. Ryan is, <laughs> Ryan is the one who, you know, spearheads all the game designs and stuff and has the ultimate say on things. He's a bit of uh, the director. Although, you know, since I joined the company, there has been sort of, we have had sort of a running joke that the 
process of playtesting is them just nerfing whatever strategies I find. So <laughs> <laughs> That's always necessary. Yes, yes. And I do have influence on the game designs because I'm playtesting and I'm consulting and stuff from really early on. It, sort of except for now or never again, because that one happened in the height of the pandemic. Like, I wasn't as involved in the, all the playtesting as I usually have been in the past. But, of, of course, I still had some input on that with, with some of the... Uh, play tests and also with the writing uh, with uh, Zeke whose character stories I wrote and stuff like that so yeah uh, speaking of uh, which one of the projects that you worked on at uh, Red Raven Games would you say is your your favorite or the one that you you enjoyed working with the, the most if you if you can say choose your favorite child mm, yes no honestly I think it might be Sleeping Gods yeah because it's Not just a such surprise. a yeah, I know. It's It was such a huge undertaking. It was uh, took us so long to work on. It was, uh, and I think it's really just kind of a cool and innovative project. And I got to be really sort of creative and a little bit more serious with my storylines. Uh, although I have to say, I also do still have a sweet, like a soft spot for Near and Far as well, since that was the first one I worked on. And I actually wrote about half of the character stories for character mode and I got to come up with a couple of the characters like I made up the concepts for them as well and I had a lot of fun with those also so yeah those those are my top games for games of ours Wonderful. we're not going to get the top one but the top two <laughs> yes sorry <laughs> oh, that's okay. I'm, I'm too indecisive <laughs> <laughs> talking about favorite games like Apart from Red Raven games, games, I find it weird when when publishers have games at the end of their name because I, I'm never sure if I if it's fine if I say Red Raven games or do I have to say Red Raven games games? You should say well, games from Red Raven games. I think. That's yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> we we often will say like Red Ravens games when referring to our own games and stuff. So yeah, that's fine to just call us just Red Raven also. <laughs> okay, the, so. Uh, the From Software um, conundrum. That's true. <laughs> so outside of your games, what is your favorite game or which are your favorite games? This this is going to be another one where there are two. <laughs> my, to be honest, favorite... I, I can't answer this question either. So, but Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, A couple of my favorite games are uh, Azul and Sagrada. I know those are probably pretty cliche answers because those are a couple of very big games, but... Well, there's a reason that they're big. Yeah, yeah. I personally just really enjoy games that are slightly more puzzly. And I, I like to be able to sort of figure out the puzzle as I'm going along, you know. Yeah, but cliche games, I mean, there's a reason why they're cliche. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they're definitely popular for a reason. But Azul especially, those tiles, you know... Those, they're so fun to just to handle. Mm. And then also there's the fun puzzle element of it. The way Fan describes those type of game is a game where, with pieces that you would want to eat. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the, yes! some of those Azul tiles look very much like Starbursts. <laughs> <laughs> if one day I get into baking, I will make an Azul cake. Yes. And I mean, that is something that people have commented on for the, specifically the plastic gems in uh, Near and Far. 
<laughs> I have heard people say they look like candies, so I guess that's a compliment for near and far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in terms of gameplay, my favorite game of my favorite of Red Ravens games is actually Rome, which I didn't do any writing for, but it again is sort of a spatial puzzle in the gameplay, so that's why I really enjoy playing that one. I think it's really fun. Yeah, I don't have it yet. Yet. Fair. I'm sure yes. I'll get it someday. Um, my quest to get all your games continues. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my quest is waiting on some translations and uh, a job as well. Uh, yes, yes. But, uh, yeah, we, with my husband, we, we play our games, our narrative games, uh, especially in, in French, and the Sleeping Gods uh, translation is still being worked on after the yep. Kickstarter. It will yep. come later in the year in stores. So if by then I have a job, I sworn I will get it. Um, <laughs> but uh, until then, uh, I'm still with my above and below. And yes. um, speaking of translations, uh, do you happen to have uh, impact or insight into the translations? Because uh, we know that... Um, I, I don't know how many languages you, you speak, Brenna, uh, but uh, all of us here speak at least two languages, English and our native one. And uh, we know that sometimes there are some things that you can't really translate right away, or if you do it word by word, it doesn't sound right. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, personally, I really only speak English, although I speak a little bit of uh, Russian as well. I minored in Russian and studied abroad there, but I haven't really kept up with it. <laughs> but uh, uh, As far as the translations of our games go, uh, they're mostly done by sort of local publishers in those areas. So we license our games out to uh, native speakers of that language, essentially, and then let them be in charge of the translations. Uh, they do send us questions if they have anything that comes up where they're not really sure what the right translation would be. So we have a little bit of input when those sorts of things come up. We can uh, consult a little bit on the translations. But yeah, since we usually don't really know the language that is being translated into, we can't necessarily check the quality of the translation that well other than what we hear from other people. But uh, we do at least try to encourage people to uh, translate the games well. We try to hire or license out to good companies and uh, sort of hope for the best since we can't fully check the quality. But Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's always difficult. Uh, I, I always remember of uh, Legend of the Five Rings, a tabletop RPG book for, I think, the third edition, where a two, which was written as a figure in the, in the I think it was an experience points or something, Ended up being a five in French as a figure. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That would throw uh, but, things off. <laughs> yeah, but that's not a thing where they would come to you and ask a question like, what did you mean by that? <laughs> it's... No, yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things that often comes up with translating our games, since so many of our games are set in fantasy worlds, frequently, like for the names of items and stuff on cards, Ryan will just make make up new words or like do weird combinations of existing words to make it like a weird fantasy thing that exists and mm -hmm. with for some reason some specific translators will get really stuck on those and they'll send us a million questions of like but what does this mean what's the intent and we're like it's just a made up it's just sounds it doesn't mean anything <laughs> 
Yeah, or, or, or like we had the, um, the let's say, controversy in, in France uh, last year when the game Bitoku was announced. <laughs> because uh, in French, bit means uh, genitals from oh, no. uh, the male population, and O means to the, in that case, and Q is uh, the but. Um, behind half, <laughs> so that wow. was, and and they decided to keep the name in French. Wow! <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> so yeah, while Lost Ruins of Narak, uh, of Arnak, sorry, became the ruin perdu de Narak because Arnak means scam in French. So uh. we, we could see, we could see both ways, and we've uh, made up words. It's uh, yeah, it's a bit something that has to be kept in mind. Yeah, yeah. Still, still on the topic of translation, uh, one thing that I uh, remember really enjoying with uh, both Near and Far and um, Above and Below is how much uh, iconography there is in the game outside of the the longer uh, choose your own adventure text. Um, yeah. I, I always like a game that has a very strong um, icon design that allows people to to you know clearly see what uh, something is going to um, uh, to do. Obviously, it's a little bit harder to do with a more uh, story-oriented game. And since uh, pretty much every game from uh, RDD, uh, RDG have, um, have those two tendencies, I was wondering if that was ever something that, uh, that you had to keep in mind, the, the strong iconography and streamlined design of the, the more gameplay aspect and uh, the heavier text of the story. Oh, yeah, that's always something that we're keeping in mind. Uh, I think we have a bit of a leg up over some other countries, uh, up some other companies in that sense, because Ryan is both the graphic designer and the game designer. So as he's designing the games, he can also keep in mind iconography issues, and he can be thinking about that from the beginning. But uh, we're always pretty invested in making sure the iconography is clear and understandable and can help streamline things because I think our games are so language heavy in terms of the storytelling aspect of it. We want to make sure that the gameplay is as smooth as possible. Um, we'll also usually try to keep in mind stuff like colorblind issues. Like if you might notice in Near and Far, uh, there's the different factions that have the different colored banners, but all of the banners also have a unique symbol on them so that you can tell them apart even if you can't tell the colors apart so we try to keep that stuff in mind as we design as well yeah that's uh, inclusivity is in showing uh, different characters in the game but also in letting different people playing the game and i think that's uh, something that we if both the community and the creators need to generally improve on Absolutely. And when we have uh, some companies and people in the community showing the way, it's even better. Yes. Yeah. I don't I don't think we're always absolutely perfect about that sort of stuff, but we at least are always trying to improve, you know, become yeah, more uh, accessible and more inclusive as we go. In my opinion, that's what matters, the, the will to, to improve. Yeah. That, that and listening to, to the people that uh, bring up uh, problems or uh, improvements possible. Yeah, yeah, and we always try to keep in mind stuff like that when we do get that feedback from customers about stuff like that. We try to uh, keep that in mind and then incorporate that either into 
our current project or future projects, you know, whatever we can still make a difference on. Because some sometimes if the files are already sent to the printer, there's not much we can do anymore. But, you of know. <laughs> uh, so with, you know, um, having multiple people be able to play a game. Actually, one thing um, that just came to mind, table space. Like, like when designing games, do you um, think about this? Um, like, do people have big enough tables for it? Because I noticed that um, Sleeping Gods and Now or Never actually, they, they need a lot of space. Yes, definitely. Uh, our games, especially our big box games, have a tendency to be a bit of a table hog. Uh, it is something that we keep in mind. It's something that we think about when playtesting and when deciding on final designs. But usually Ryan will decide that you know, his vision is a little bit more of a priority than the table space. Like we try to, we try to rein it back as much as we can, but you know, the design, the gameplay comes first in, in some ways. Uh, although again, that's something we're always improving on and it depends a bit on the specific game and the design goals for that specific game. And uh, I know some of the changes we're making to sort of the basic gameplay system in Distant Skies compared to the original Sleeping Gods are going to make it a little bit less of a table hog, so we're reining a bit of that in for Distant Skies. But yeah, usually that that's something we think about, but is it always a priority, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think it was already mentioned somewhere that uh, Distant Skies has less characters, right? Yes, it only has five characters instead of the nine. So that already is taking up a bit of less space. And then also, and all this stuff is subject to change because we tend to be sort of very um, loosey-goosey with the design until it goes to the printers. Like Ryan might decide last second, oh, we're going to make this big change to the game. So all of this stuff about distance, guys, who knows? But uh, yes, so currently five characters and also... There are some of the systems that have been redesigned, like the adventure cards, which in Sleeping Gods, as you go through the campaign, you can pick up a ton of those and then just have a oh, yeah. bunch of cards all over your table. In Distant Skies, that's going to be like a card hand that you sort of will go through and you'll play cards from your hand to use their effect instead of having them just all out on the table. So there's a bit of ways that we've tried to change things to get stuff up off of the table and maybe into a hand that you are using uh, instead. And so those in those ways, the setup will be a little bit more in control, you know? <laughs> I'm actually curious, I have to ask, um, like the, the, the table you play test on, what dimensions does it have? I actually don't know. <laughs> I'm bad at <laughs> estimating dimensions. <laughs> That's probably fine. That's fine. average kitchen table size. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but what is an average kitchen table size? That's, I don't know either. That's a good question. <laughs> also. Well, I just have to watch the uh, documentary again. And now that I have now and ever, I can just compare the, the component sizes. <laughs> yes. And... Yeah. No, it also, <laughs> it also changes a lot now that uh, we don't work in person in the office as much anymore. Uh, we're using sort of a variety of different tables depending on where we go for the playtest. So it's not do, do super you, consistent. 
do you, do you plan to go back to working in person again or is it like a lot of people and companies notice that this option of decentralizing work is kind of good for them how how is it for you yeah we've actually managed to work really well remotely uh we still currently actually have our office space uh partially because it's uh storage and there's some stuff that like I kind of have to do in person specifically I personally send out all the spare parts that if people ask for a replacement piece for a broken or missing piece for the game I package that up and I send it out personally and so all of that stuff is stored in person in our office so I have to go into the office for that but pretty much everything else and then also we have to meet up for play testing obviously but yeah everything else other than that We can do remotely and Ryan and I both work really well that way. So it's kind of turned out well for us and we don't really currently have any plans to go back to the office permanently, like working there all the time. Although again, it's kind of useful to still have the space. So we'll see how it develops in the future, but we've, we've managed to work really well remotely. So um, with replacement parts, um... I just got a, a, a replacement part for a big builds, big brick build set today. And mm -hmm. um, how do you do it? Like, do you actually unpack a new game to take out the parts someone needs, or do you have like the oh, air our, parts our... extra? Yeah, our manufacturer actually will, with any new print run of the game, will also send us a couple of cases just full of just spare bits so uh they'll usually pack you know the same pieces into like one cardboard box so there will be a box of just a bunch of the uh punch boards and one of just all the game books and one of like a ton of cards so those those boxes can be very heavy <laughs> but <laughs> our process is uh usually when i get when we get a shipment in of all of those i'll take some of the parts from each of those boxes and consolidate them into one box for one game that has every piece for that game in it, just like a bunch of them. And then when I get a request for that, I'll go into that specific box and grab whatever they asked for and then uh, stick it in an envelope and mail it. So it's, it, it is very time consuming doing the organization and searching through for stuff, but <laughs> it works. <laughs> But it's better than the company with the brick build. Um, yes. Yes. Thing does it because they actually, if you if you tell them, hey, I'm missing this piece, they actually contact the manufacturer and tell them, well, I need this piece, and then they start shipping it. So it oh, takes wow. quite a long time, and yeah. uh, people find it really weird that they don't have a better solution for it. But okay. That does seem. Um, Yeah, the, the downside of the way we do it is that we don't replace game boxes since we're not opening games to send out pieces from them. And our manufacturer also doesn't print spare boxes. So we don't, we're not able to replace game boxes, which comes up sometimes that people get upset about that. But any of the internal components we can replace. That's actually good to know because um, my Empire of the World 2 box was a little bit damaged in shipping and I, yeah, I, it, it I happen, was thinking a lot about if I if I would should should tell someone but decided not to and now I learn you couldn't yep. have done anything <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah um 
when we've just been talking about you know working working remotely and um how do you divide the workload like um for example both you and ryan write stories is it like ryan goes to you and says hey i need 20 encounters for this game or basically yeah it, it depends a little bit on the specific project but ryan is generally sort of uh the director of the storybook in a way so he will tell me like that he needs a certain number of encounters or uh, with our map books. Like what, what we did with Sleeping God specifically is we had sort of a massive map of the world up on uh, Ryan's office wall. So this was when we were still working in person. We had a, a big blown up version of the world map and we sort of sat there looking at it and we divided up all the individual spaces of who was gonna write which spots. So like some, several of the maps, like mostly those in the, in the north were assigned to me in, in their entirety. And then we would, if we wanted to write quest lines that led somewhere else in the world, we'd go tell the other person, we'd be like, okay, I'm going to claim this spot on this map over here and for my quest. And then I'm going to claim this one. So then we kind of divided them out that way um, for, uh, for this new one, for Distant Skies, we're doing it a little bit differently. Uh, we're kind of mixing it up more so we're doing less of oh you're assigned to this area and you're assigned to this area and doing more of just the claiming of spaces and being like okay I'm writing this story and it's going to be here and I'm writing this other story and it's going to be over here uh, but actually also in Distant Skies we're going to be able to have sort of more than one encounter on the same space a little bit so there's a little bit more flexibility there um, with like near and far, it was, yeah, a certain number of encounters per map. And then also like assigned certain characters with uh, now or never, I was just assigned Zeke as a character. And then I just wrote all of Zeke's stories. Uh, sort of stuff like that is how we end up dividing it. And then usually I'll just, we'll just kind of go off and do our own writing. And then we'll read through each other's stories and give feedback and make any changes we need to. and then you know the final stage is we all read through the full storybook several times to again try to catch any mistakes or to make any story changes we need to make sure nothing none of the stories contradict each other etc cetera, etc cetera. how much uh, creative freedom do you get there is it like uh, ryan says uh, i'm going to say something stupid uh, which relates to my experience in above and below uh, like oh i'd like to have a quest uh, which goes about the mushroom people and do whatever you want or does it give um uh like guidelines or just hey write a quest uh and how can you input uh, etc yeah, I actually get a good amount of creative freedom. Usually we'll have like a world book sort of with just world building details. And then also Ryan will come up with a basic story premise for the game. And then sort of keeping all that stuff in mind, I can basically come up with whatever seems like a good idea and fitting for this situation for me. Uh, and so I have a lot of creative freedom. Although then Ryan also does get veto if he doesn't like any of my ideas. <laughs> so there were a couple of there were a couple of encounters that I wrote for Sleeping Gods that uh, Ryan came back and was like, uh, do something else for that. Because so, <laughs> my ideas were maybe, I guess, a, a 
the reason they were rejected was because they were a little too silly and we were going for a slightly more serious tone with Sleeping Gods. So I was like, okay, that's fair. And I came up with different stuff for those spaces. But in the, at least in the brainstorming and in the rough draft stage, I can basically do whatever I want and then <laughs> we can figure out if it fits later on. But I usually do try to keep the tone of the game in mind and then also sort of the tone of Ryan's style of writing. So I try to sort of match what his stories sound like a little bit and then also uh yeah keep the world details in mind and uh that sort of thing no mushroom um, people in um sleeping gods no no well maybe <laughs> but they would be the... scary they would the, have the... to be they would have to be slightly horror mushroom people like scary they mushroom people chess. not silly mushroom people yeah <laughs> i love the mushroom people i i love uh, the mushroom people in, uh, too above and below. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes i i was actually uh curious about uh well sleeping god is definitely a jules verne uh type inspiration yes. in a lot of mm -hmm. um of its aspect especially um how, what's the name the one that goes into a river um oh primeval peril yeah, that, that one has a very uh, Hollow Earth uh, kind of uh, vibe, at least to me. Yes. Uh, I was wondering what other type of uh, inspiration and material did you did you consume to get into the proper uh, tone that you were trying to hit? Yeah, so for, for Sleeping Gods, some of the major touchstones were Jules Verne, like you mentioned, and other sort of adventure stories from that era, but also a little bit of Lovecraftian horror and... Uh, also, the Odyssey was a big one. Actually, our working title for the game for a long time was Odyssey before we came up with the title of Sleeping Gods. So that, that sort of is still in the game in the name of the captain of the Manticore, whose name is Odessa. So that's a little bit of a nod back to the Odyssey again. Uh, for me personally, one of the touchstones I used was the actually a computer game called uh, Sunless Sea which is also kind of like yes. a you're yeah you're a, a ship wandering a scary ocean uh and having all of these story encounters so that uh, actually it's it's funny because it is kind of somewhat similar to sleeping gods and gameplay but it is also mostly a coincidence because ryan hadn't heard of sunless sea before he had already gotten pretty far in sleeping gods and i mentioned it to him and he was like oh that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fail Better Games uh, make some really incredible stories. Uh, Fallen London and uh, uh, Sunless Seas and uh, there's yep. another one in the sky. I don't remember yep. the title. Yeah, of just Sunless Skies, I think, is what that one is called. Yeah, every one of their games is, is pretty amazing. And I think that they're just coming up with a um, text uh, adventure, no novel adventure, uh, something like that soon called uh, Mask of the Rose or something. Uh, oh, I need yeah. to check that, but uh, yeah. So, Jules Verne, Lovecraft, and other authors of the adventure era of storytelling often talked about foreign countries in quote-unquote exotic uh, and mystical terms, uh, often modeled yes. by uh, colonial past and colored by racism. I was wondering how much of this was a strong and conscious effort during Sleeping God's development, uh, at least from my reading, it seems like Red Ribbon Games did a good job uh, at keeping what made those books uh, exciting without blindly keeping uh, aspects that could be iffy nowadays. Oh, well, uh, thank you. But yeah, that is definitely something we always keep in mind while both working on the design of the game and then especially while working on the stories. 
uh, especially yet yeah, with those specific stories that we're taking inspiration from, we're very aware of, you know, the, definitely the problematic history of those and trying to uh, be inspired by the parts of those that are good and be a- aware of not branching too far into the stuff that's a problem in those. Uh, I think I honestly in our company, I especially uh, care about that sort of stuff. So sometimes there will be things that come up that again weren't necessarily intentional on Ryan's part. Like he's not out there trying to do anything problematic, but sometimes there can be some old vocabulary that slips in. Like I think there was uh, at one point in Sleeping Gods where Ryan had used like the term exotic or uh, maybe even like savage or something. And I was like, okay, yeah. let's let's move away from that terminology because that can be a, a bad look, you know? We don't, yeah, don't want to be using those kinds of words. So I, I'm always trying to uh, be extra careful reading through and uh, considering the implications of what we're writing and what we're creating from all sorts of angles so I can uh, make sure that we're not perpetuating anything problematic like that, you know? Yeah, and, and to come back to your point uh, earlier, just before I, just after I joined, uh, that's why diversity in a in writing team uh, is super important because everybody has their um, uh, their blind zone, and sometimes they won't they won't notice um, bad habits to to call things uh, to use terms like um, a tribal or savage or just uh, going back into that that legacy of. Uh, uh, colonialism and uh, imperialism. So yeah, uh, kudos to you on uh, on that note because I think that Sleeping God uh, pulls it off uh, very well, uh, a lot better than some other games into the same uh, using the same teams or uh, settings. Yes, yeah, definitely. I pre- I appreciate that. I'm glad I'm glad that it comes across well because we definitely did put a lot of effort into that. I think we are actually touching on um, another question of mine. Um, how important is editing like um i think a lot of people have this idea okay you write a story and then it's written um but that's not it right yeah no editing is super important especially with uh story games like the game element uh because it's so incorporated into the mechanic system you have to really keep in mind that sort of stuff. And plus with uh, the branching narratives of, you know, certain stories leading to other stories, leading to other stories, like that stuff takes so much editing and looking over again and again to make sure that it all works correctly and everything connects properly to what it's supposed to connect to and nothing is contradicting itself and all of the terms are being used properly. And... Uh, the funny thing is that sometimes I will get people who are mad at us because they think we didn't edit well enough because there's still like a couple typos in the game. But uh, these storybooks are like the length of several long novels, essentially. <laughs> like, and, and we do read through them like multiple times, all of us, uh, not even just me and Ryan, but also... Uh, uh, Mallory Lockett, Ryan's wife, and other like uh, part timers that we get involved sometimes, and like friends and family, we'll have a, just we'll do just do tons of read throughs with editing notes, trying to catch all that stuff, trying to fix all that stuff. But usually, there's still a couple of typos that slip through, 
or uh, one major editing challenge is if there's an update to the game mechanics and the terminology we use in the game, we have to update all of that in the storybook. So that happened several times in Sleeping Gods where we changed the whole skill system, how skill checks worked. And so we had to change everything in the book because that's all skill checks. And I think there's a couple spots in there still where some older terminology is used that has caused some confusion for people. So that's um, something we've had to fix in subsequent print runs and stuff because it's hard to catch everything. But we usually do our best to catch as much as we possibly can. Um, the other really funny thing in Sleeping Gods is we actually didn't notice until quite a while after the game had been released. But there's one of the totems on the achievement sheet that uh, it's not actually possible to get. <laughs> so we just... Oh my! Yeah, we... The card exists, but it's not anywhere in the story where you can get it. I think what happened is that at some point in the story, there had... I think I know the specific encounter that used to give that totem, but we changed what that totem was. We like updated it to a different thing, but we forgot to delete the other totem from existence. So there's the uh, the stone of music. You cannot actually get anywhere in Sleeping Gods. <laughs> so there's an easy fix. When you have all the other one ticked at some point, you get this one for free. Yep, 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 pretty much. That's just how you got to do it. <laughs> Just like a uh, um, promo expansion, like a special quest card or, yeah. or something. Let's, let's I mean, just start there was, with it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in Near and Far, there actually is intentionally a story in the storybook that nothing in the game leads to because it's a little bit of a, of a, like an Easter egg that kind of was an early hint to what Now or Never was going to be about. So it was kind of pointing towards the future of... Uh, our plans for that series but yeah there's there's a specific story encounter in near and far that intentionally doesn't have anything connected to it but yeah in sleeping gods we did that on accident well sort of a hidden achievement if someone managed to get it uh <laughs> yeah well much. then they did something wrong <laughs> yes oh and actually another really funny sort of editing mistake in sleeping gods that ended up working out really well was there's a couple of specific quests where we basically put the wrong cardinal directions on the quest card compared to where the quests actually are on the map. Aww. But for for one of those is a, sort of one of the more humorous encounters that I wrote that Ryan allowed to stay in the game, which involves a red herring. Uh, and uh, which, you know, a red herring is a fake clue. So in that case, in that specific encounter, it does have the cardinal directions mixed up from what they should be. But that kind of works because it's a quest line about a red herring anyway. So, you know. <laughs> Aha! Got you! <laughs> it's just a secret, definitely intentional joke. <laughs> but yeah, all this is very good to know for completionists um, who try to How get do you every translate that in French? The red herring. Oh. That oh, is a good question. I don't know. They, uh, the translators never asked us about it. Ah. <laughs> oh. Uh, une fausse piste, maybe? Not exactly the same, but uh, yeah. a false yeah. lead in, in French would be the translation. Uh, yeah, but it is, it is in the story. It is also a literal red oh. colored <laughs> herring. So that would make it hard. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, the, the literal aspect. Oh, it, it, I, I didn't know that in the story it was a literal bird. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, a a girouette, maybe? Girouette, to... maybe? Sometimes puns are hard to translate. Yes, yeah. for sure. Um, to to uh, jump topics uh, a little bit, um, when we we uh, decided to have an interview with you, uh, I I looked through your itch.io page mm -hmm. uh, and I saw that you had two uh, visual novel games. Uh, I played through I played through both of them and I, I enjoyed them. Uh, but I noticed that both of them were uh, very introspective and, and personal uh, with the characters and uh, sci-fi related, which are very different topic from what uh, Red Raven Game has been uh, has gone for. So I was wondering if uh, sci-fi was more of your uh, uh, preferred team, and if uh, Red Raven Game was uh, was planning to go sci-fi at some point, or if it was just um, you know, something that felt right for the stories that you were trying to tell? Uh, that's a really good question. I actually have uh, a lot of personal interest in sci-fi and also also still in fantasy. Honestly, I would consider myself probably a balanced writer of both, just in my own personal projects. Uh, I've actually been writing just my own stories since I was like eight years old, and it's always been sci-fi and fantasy both. Um, As and, um, Terry Pratchett says, it is um, sci-fi is just fantasy with more uh, computer or something like that. Something very close to that. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, Terry Pratchett is actually a big influence on me uh, just as a writer. Uh, but yeah, he, I, I enjoy both. Um, with sci-fi stuff in particular, I've always had, like you can see from those games, a particular interest in sort of exploring the concepts of loneliness and consciousness and like getting into a lot of uh, sad robots is something that uh, people will joke about that I write a lot, which I actually have found ways to incorporate into some of my Red Raven <laughs> that is game true. stories. They're, they're all uh, sad automatons in, uh, in some yep. of those games. So. Yep, and uh, most of them were written by me, so... <laughs> That does make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So is it is it something that uh, you think Red Raven might uh, go for in the future? Um, something from uh, beyond the stars? Well, we have uh, at least, you know, some sci-fi games. We have Empires of the Void, uh, but it doesn't have, like, the storytelling element of it. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if we don't, like, have any current plans to do a sci-fi story game. It's definitely possible in the future that we might. Uh, for sort of, I feel like Ryan's interest as a world builder tends to lean more fantasy, so that's part of why we do more fantasy games than sci-fi. But it's certainly, it's certainly possible. I would it's enjoy wonderful. it. <laughs> um, I could uh, write I, down I, more sad uh, robots. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm, I won't remember which uh, sci-fi author said it, but uh, that good sci-fi isn't when you predict the combustion engine, it's when you predict traffic jam. It's always about the, the type of story that you say with the, the technological innovation, not just the technological in innovation itself. So yeah, uh, therapist AI is a great, uh, uh, great way to do something fun with a uh, sci-fi team. Uh, team. So yeah. Looking forward Thank you. if, if yeah. it ever goes there. 
Um, are you like working on multiple projects at this project at the same time, um, or like for example, did you work on Distant Skies while doing Now or Never? Well, we do usually work on multiple projects at once. Although usually the full team is usually focused on one at a time, but Ryan is constantly sort of coming up with new ideas and iterating stuff in the background. So by the time we start like really focusing on getting a project ready to go, it's actually already pretty far in the design process. Uh, some and some of sometimes those designs that Ryan works on in the background end up becoming something completely different. Like for example, the game Islebound actually started out as a concept that Ryan had had for a version of an Empires of the Void game and uh, uh, stuff like that. <laughs> You're saying that Ryan Lukat uh, always has new ideas and stuff. So uh, very serious question, but you have to be aware of the uh, latest news. Well, it's it's been big news. Uh, so is Ryan Lukat the Brandon Sanderson of board games? <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good question. Uh, I would say in some ways, yeah, in, in terms of just <laughs> coming up with full projects that he then is like, okay, here's a whole new completed game and we're going to publish this in like a couple weeks, then yeah, he, he does that sometimes. <laughs> with, with, our, with our bigger games, with stuff like Distant Skies and with Sleeping Gods and stuff, those take a lot longer. Uh, so again, Ryan usually is having those ideas in the background for a really long time. And then once we all start working on it together, it is really involved and takes a really long time. But there are some of our games in our library, like actually Rome is one of them, that Ryan pretty much came, like he, he showed up to work one day. And it's like, here, I have this whole game. We playtested play it a few times and like within a month or two, we've sent it to the printers. So some of them go very quickly uh, because they're very sort of more complete ideas and simpler ideas. But if, if it's a big box story game, those ones take a lot longer. But they're usually incorporating ideas from the millions of iterations of different concepts that Ryan is working on in the background all the time, you know? Yeah. So um, regarding projects, um, I know there are two games, maybe in the pipeline or maybe not, that some people, of course not me, but uh, are kind of interested in knowing something about. Um, there's a small card game, um, I think it's called Ten gods or so. Um, oh yeah, that um, eight was gods. supposed eight gods. This was supposed to be an uh, like add-on or a special reward for backers of the. Yeah, I forgot the name. Like like some kind of dungeon crawly type of. Game. Oh yes, it was. Uh, when we were doing that crowdfunding campaign that we ended up canceling, uh, the game was called. Um, Oh, I can't even remember what it was called then because we've changed the title. <laughs> uh, it was Rift Nights was what we were uh, crowdfunding it under. But yeah, we've actually since changed the name of that particular game to Nightfall. And that will be coming out uh, actually later this year. So we decided to skip crowdfunding campaign for that and we're going just direct to retail. And we're trying to have at least some copies available by... Gen Con, although we'll we'll see how that goes. Logistics are a little uh, uh, unreliable these days. <laughs> but uh, for Eight God, that's that one's kind of been shelved for the moment. Uh, 
as a as a small company, we're often very sort of flexible with our production schedule. So uh, who knows when that'll come out down the line, but uh, it's at least for now, it's on the back burner a bit. But Nightfall is coming. We have sort of also revamped it a bit from the crowdfunded version. So now in addition to it being... So, so like the... Okay, to explain the basics of Nightfall is that it's a asymmetrical team game where you're playing as either like a team of knights who are trying to defend this monastery and the elders there or a team of demons who are trying to attack it to like fully open this portal to the underworld so they can break through and like wreak havoc. And uh, so you play team versus team or there's a co-op rules or even there's actually going to be like a one to two player uh, co-op campaign where it is a storybook and you read through stories and make choices and like go through this whole story that I actually didn't write any of the stories for that one. Ryan wrote all of that on his own, but <laughs> it, but it will have those story aspects for people who like that stuff from our games. And actually that game wasn't designed by Ryan, like the full game, like Ryan designed the sort of the campaign version of it, but the basic game was actually designed by, uh, T. Alex Davis, who also designed our game Deep Vents. So that's what that but, is. <laughs> oh, that, that made me think of a question and it just went away from my mind as soon as I thought it. Huh? <laughs> oh, uh, well. No, I, I'm, it's lost. <laughs> okay. So um, if, if it won't come to any crowdfunding platform, will you do like a pre-order like you did with Now or Never so international fans can get it? We don't currently have plans for a pre-order. Ryan might want to do one once we're a little bit closer to the release. Although that sort of thing, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, pre-orders can take a lot of pre-planning because we have to do a lot of sort of different stuff logistically like we'll take advantage of different um fulfillment centers worldwide to make international shipping a bit cheaper and reduce customs charges and stuff like that so we kind of have to pre-prep for that uh in pretty far in advance so i'm i'm not sure we're going to do a pre-order for this game but it should be available internationally through retail so you should be able to get it eventually at local game stores around the world although it can take a long time for games to make it through distribution but and to be hopefully. translated <laughs> yes and to be translated especially our storybook games can take a very long time to translate for obvious reasons because there's a lot of text in those storybooks <laughs> but yes there will most likely be translated editions eventually as well Okay, so I, I definitely hope there will be a pre-order because I actually don't want the German versions. So retail That's is kind understandable. of problematic. <laughs> oh, is it? Why? Yeah. No, I, I no, I just I just get not wanting to have to wait for it and wanting the English edition. Like I I I, I understand both wanting it in English or wanting it in German. Like I can I can see both perspectives. If you can read it in the original language, it's always uh, easier to go to the source, right? Yes. For all walks yeah. of fiction. I agree with that. Yeah, but I can't. Well, I, I can, but my uh, other player uh, would not uh, appreciate. Yes. And, and that... having the books in English in my hands and reading out loud in French is exhausting. Yes, that that would be exhausting. I can see that for sure. I, I mean, honestly, for um, near and f uh, above and below, uh, there isn't 
too much to read because uh, anyway you don't explore at every single turn so that's okay in the amount of reading that I could do with uh, based from a book in English and reading in French out loud but uh, more than that that's difficult yes yeah I, I think especially sleeping gods would probably be difficult to play that way but yeah I, I, I completely uh, shelved the idea of buying sleeping gods uh, in English and we will see when I have a job and it's out in French yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Nightfall at least will be slightly easier in that aspect because the campaign mode is only one small mode of the game. There's a lot of ways to play the game that doesn't involve any story reading at all and uh, isn't necessarily as heavily language dependent. So that's something for that at least. But I remember my question from previously. Yes. Go for it. Uh, it was about campaign games. Uh, there are, let's say, two major type of campaign games now. With two subgroups, which are one legacy games and the other, which I would call non-legacy games. And um, most of your games are actually non-legacy. You don't uh, modify permanently uh, the stuff. There is no card uh, tiering, uh, stuff like that. Uh, do you have plans to do things like that? Are you the kind of designers that want the materials to, let's say, be respected and not broken? Or is it just uh, the way you feel about the games and replaying the campaigns, etc.? Yeah, I think we're, we're very focused on making our campaigns as replayable as possible. That's something we always are keeping in mind. So if there are any components that you sort of modify, they're going to be paper that you are taking notes on, basically, and we're, that you can reuse or, like, use a new sheet and keep going. So, yeah, we have been aware of that sort of dichotomy from the beginning, and we've always very uh, specifically chosen to go the non-legacy route. Like, we don't want people to have to permanently destroy or modify any components because we want our games to be replayable and to be reusable and to be able to do multiple campaigns if you want to that sort of thing uh also we're partially it's it's less because we are super judgmental about legacy games it's not like we think legacy games are all terrible it's partially just that we have different goals with our games and i think we're very aware that we have a quite a few fans of our games that would be very upset at legacy elements like they people tend to uh treat our games somewhat as sort of collectible works of art like we have fans that are like that who want it to be like so totally beautiful and pristine because they like ryan's artwork and his graphic design so much so we don't want to have to uh greatly upset those fans when we're like oh you have to tear up this card like they would be so mad about that <laughs> i can't imagine you have fans like that yeah. i mean i saw i saw away the gloomhaven card that i had to tear i just saw them away so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in, in terms of uh, of story design, have you um, ever thought about the the the, the fun implication of having uh, the story permanent uh, the the uh, next time that the game is played, having the story affected by the the previous uh, time that the player played through the game? Is that something that has ever been uh, discussed or been part of it? Because some legacy games are. Uh, 
one-time uh, one-time only uh, games where at the end you you just pack the game and some cards were destroyed and you can't really replay the, the whole thing but some ca- some games you can also replay them and just have a different experience because of that uh, that previous run I was wondering if that was something that was ever discussed yeah that's definitely something we've uh, thought about we've found sort of other non-legacy ways to implement sort of versions of that like in sleeping gods depending on uh the number of totems you found in previous playthroughs in all of your campaigns like combined you unlock certain cards that you can then uh, include in games further on so there's a little bit of that modifying mostly it's gameplay modifications rather than story modifications uh but you can have those in future games that will change the gameplay a little bit and make future campaigns a little bit different um in terms of story, I feel like the biggest thing in our games is just that you know the world and the story a bit better. So you have new ideas of where to go or you can anticipate certain things and try to get different endings to the game based on your previous experience rather than having necessarily anything story-wise carry over like specifically from previous games. Uh, that's definitely something we might think about potentially doing in the future, but it's not currently something implemented into any of our games. It's actually something when we talked about Sleeping Gods, I think that was um, like a common thing we didn't specifically like about Sleeping mm. Gods because the the way, and maybe you can take this as an idea or something for Distant Skies, the, when we all saw the achievement sheet, we were really excited because we thought, oh great, we get new quest cards. So in the second playthrough, we have new or different starting quests which lead us in a different direction and then it was actually kind of a disappointment seeing that it wasn't that but it was just like uh, just in in quotation marks like optional rules you could implement um, during your playthrough so i would have really liked to have new starting quests that forced me somewhat in a different direction because it, it was quite hard for me to start a new game because I thought if I start a new game now, it starts the same way as the first one. And I have no incentive to do something different because I know how to win. That, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is, makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, that actually is something that we considered a lot while designing the game. We seriously thought about maybe having a couple of different starting points that you could uh, start from depending on, yeah, on unlocks or, or other stuff. Uh, but ultimately, that was just too complex for us to implement into this. Like the storybook was already so long and so complicated that implementing different starting locations was uh, sort of not feasible. We kind of had to uh, scale back our ambitions a little bit in that regard. Uh, Possibly it's something we can consider for future games if we're keeping other aspects of the game a little bit more in check so we can we can uh, have different starting points as part of the scope and not get a little bit too out of hand. Uh, I will say for Sleeping Gods, I feel like, yeah, the main incentive to do something different in a new playthrough is just that you want to see different stuff. But <laughs> uh, So you can choose to go to for a completely different part else, of the world. Latino. But yeah. Yeah, but... I mean, we, we just felt like it was somewhat of a missed opportunity. 
I'm yeah, sorry no, so much for, for my criticizing here, but um, it's it's a great game. I love it. It's a <laughs> total recommendation. But that's just it. It really stuck with me, especially with um, there are there are some you know stories and and encounters and hints that lead to like an overarching narrative that mm -hmm. would have really benefited from this. Okay, this feeling. Yeah, I'm actually here a second time instead of I'm here again the first time um yeah i i don't want yeah. to spoil anything for anyone so <laughs> no i i think i think that's understandable i i will also say i think we were hoping that the fact that there are a uh, a number of different endings would also be a bit of a an incentive to do something different in a new playthrough to get to a different ending especially there are uh, there are a couple of again i won't spoil anything specific but there are a couple of unique endings that have very specific story requirements that require you to sort of be in different areas of the world to even discover the starting points for those quests that lead to those unique endings. So we were hoping that players would be incentivized to try to explore more, to try to get all of the different endings. But yeah, I can see how starting in the same location every time would, would feel a little bit daunting. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just me. I, I always struggle a little bit with uh, completely open world games, even with computer yeah, games. Yeah. I'm always like tell me what i have to do <laughs> um yeah so um looking at your uh, next big project uh, that's coming on gamefound in at the time of the recording i think like two weeks days. yeah okay um I think. yes oh less than <clears throat> 30 it's uh i think um Deltina. I Oh, 13. Okay. Well, yes. 12 day and 21 hours. I have yes. the timer in front of you. Yes. Now. <laughs> okay. Yes, correct. So, um, Sorry, misheard you. Um, I read somewhere that uh, Red Raven Games does not want to use Kickstarter in the future. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've, like, we don't want to, uh, like, complain too much because we're, we're very grateful for uh, the amount of support that we've always gotten through Kickstarter. But especially as a small team and with our Kickstarters getting bigger and bigger every time we launch them. And then also, especially this last time with Sleeping Gods, with the pandemic and with Brexit and stuff causing issues with fulfillment and the just the amount of vitriol we got from customers trying to sort that out kind of cooled us on the prospect of crowdfunding in general. But... <laughs> Uh, Kickstarter especially. So that's why part, part, part of why we've switched to GameFound for this next campaign. We want to test it out and see if it's a better system. Uh, there's a lot of ways in which Kickstarter itself is not very creator-friendly. It doesn't have a lot of flexibility. And GameFound has a lot more options for us to be able to run the campaign uh, a bit more easily logistically and also uh, from the community management aspect of it. And so we're we're very hopeful that GameFound will go a little bit better for us. And uh, and again, we're very thankful for all of our Kickstarter supporters over the years. It can just be a, a little bit of a of a mess on the fulfillment side sometimes because of how Kickstarter works. I have to say, just as a user, uh, I prefer GameFound pages because you have all these categories left, and you can click to see the gameplay, see the add-ons, see the shipping, see, uh, and you can just. Uh, when you get back to the page later, you can just say, oh, I want to see that again, and you click on it, and bam, you're there. And you don't have to scroll, especially now that uh, Kickstarter pages are 
bigger and longer and um, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it's easier for me to manage a reading game font. Yes. I also find managing your your pledge easier actually. Like um, with Kickstarter, if you want to add one add-on, you have to click through the whole pledge selection again um, to then add this one add-on. Um, while in GameFound, you can just okay, I want to add this, and it's, yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. the The fact that uh, it directs it it implements the add-ons and the pledge manager directly on the same platform is uh was one of the big selling points for us because on kickstarter you would have to have your kickstarter campaign you'd have to go to a different company for the pledge management and to get uh to allow for late pledges and to get all of the address information and then again a different company for fulfillment and there was just so much stuff to juggle and kickstarter was not very friendly in having all that on the same platform and in the same space and easy to use and GameFound has all of that sort of pre-built in so that's that's a big uh, reason why we think it will be a better experience both for us and for and for backers. For backers, especially European backers, because GameFound uh, integrates a few things better than Kickstarter for European uh, backers. Absolutely, I... and for and for shipping to Europe too, it'll make our lives a lot yeah. easier getting stuff yeah. to people in Europe. <laughs> and Kickstarter goes like, "What is VAT? Oh, I have no idea what it mm. is." <laughs> Yeah, that was that was one of the things that caused us a lot of logistical issues with fulfilling Sleeping Gods, especially because the fulfillment happened to exactly coincide with when Brexit was finally all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had so many issues of games being stuck in either Britain or in Europe and not being able to ship because of weird things with VAT or with uh, with UK VAT versus EU VAT and like all this stuff that was a nightmare to deal with. So the fact that GameFound implements a lot of that stuff directly into that platform and makes it so much easier is a, is a huge reason why we went over there. Yeah, when you have a community that's outside the, the US, at some point you have to either address that or use partners that do. Yes, yeah. And, and that's also part of why we went back to crowdfunding again, although we were briefly considering just not doing crowdfunding ever again and just doing pre-orders but uh crowdfunding is really one of the best ways we can reach our international fans because as a really small company we can't really ship internationally just normally just for everyday orders because it's so expensive and we don't really have uh the volume that like big online retailers have that allows them to sort of offset some of those international shipping costs a bit and we don't want to be charging people the same amount for the game again to ship it to them. So we just kind of don't ship internationally with our normal online store stuff. But because we can use international shipping partners for those big crowdfunding campaigns where we're shipping a bunch of stuff all at once over to Europe and then having someone there ship to everyone else, to all the individual people in Europe, that makes it a lot more feasible for us to get to reach our international customers. And we want people around the world to be able to play our games, you know? Yeah. Uh, GameFound was made by uh, Arakan Realms too, which explains a lot of the reasons why they integrated a lot of the, uh, a lot of solutions to problems that creators might have, that board games creators specifically might have had using uh, Kickstarter, given that they had their own experience on Kickstarter and decided to, 
you know make their their own platform. Uh, and it seems that a lot uh, of uh, board game people are, are enjoying uh, game phones uh, recently, which is pretty great to have an alternative to Kickstarter, especially as they are, um, without getting controversial, moving on to the blockchain now. Um, in any, in yes. any case, having a bit of, uh, having a, having a bit of uh, let's say, market uh, more choice is rarely a bad choice. Rarely. Sometimes yeah. it can, but... Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the crypto thing is part of again, a part of why we were very confident about our choice to move away from Kickstarter. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people are going to um, move ship uh, yes. thanks to that. Yeah, it, it wasn't the specific reason we were already off of, we were already pretty sure we were never going to go back on Kickstarter before any of that was announced. But when that was announced, we were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> We're glad we did, we're out we of it. We did the right choice. D d <laughs> yeah. Just one more, just more, one more reason for uh, to move away. That's a mm -hmm. bit like me stopping my World of Warcraft sub subscription last August and in September. Ooh. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the fact that Game Found is more board game specific is definitely a, a selling point. Yeah. Um, so with your next big project, I mean, you've already start, said at the start <laughs> that um, you can't divulge too much about it. Um, <clears throat> but um, we've learned a couple things now. So like, what was the table space is uh, something that gets a little bit better, probably. Um, <clears throat> what else can you tell us about the game? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what I can say is that Distant Skies is a sequel, a standalone sequel to Sleeping Gods. So you don't have to have played Sleeping Gods to play uh, Distant Skies, and uh, it will be completely self-contained. But it does also have story connections to the original Sleeping Gods, so there's elements of it that will be familiar if you've played uh, Sleeping Gods, but any sort of important concepts will be explained as they come up in distant skies so like no one will be lost if they're starting with distant skies um it takes place in sort of a different area of the same world so rather than being on an archipelago it's actually on a continent that's a little bit to i believe the northeast of the city of lucra if you're familiar with the map of sleeping gods and it takes place sort of in the future compared to sleeping gods so it's in the 30s instead of the 20s and uh, it involves a cargo plane rather than a cargo ship, hence the skies rather than the seas. Uh, other than that, uh, gameplay-wise, we're uh, revamping the combat system a bit. So again, all the sort of the specifics of the gameplay mechanics are kind of in flux since the game is still actively being uh, playtested and designed and iterated. But uh, at least right now, it looks like our new uh, combat system is going to involve sort of uh, deck building elements in a way. So instead of sort of having weapons that you equip, you'll actually have a hand of different weapons and different uh, damage dealing cards that uh, you play out to all of the different, whoever's playing with you, you all get a certain amount of these uh, combat cards that you then play through combat to attack. Um, we also have at least currently gotten rid of accuracy. So basically if you attack, you hit, you, you don't have to, uh, 
draw a fate card, which is kind of like a roll of the dice to see if you hit or not. So all of the, the combat has sort of just been streamlined essentially. And then same with the adventure cards. Um, another big change is instead of the event deck being the timer for the game, there's sort of an action timer that is uh, keeping track of how long you've been playing and how long you still have to go before you you fail entirely. <laughs> and there's a little bit more of a built-in story reason for why you have a time limit in this game as well, although I won't uh, spoil that because that uh, is kind of an exciting element of the, of the storyline. Uh, but uh, yeah, pretty much that's the basics. I don't know if you guys have any more questions, but uh, I I do have one question that is not gameplay specific. Uh, mm-hmm. I've only played uh, Sleeping Gods. Uh, I, I've only given given a try to do Sleeping Gods uh, with a friend. Uh, I don't have it myself. How would Distant Sky work for someone that uh, hasn't played uh, Sleeping Gods properly? Um, do you, do you feel like the story is a continuation? And you need to have played Sleeping God before, or do you feel that it can be used as a as an entry point? Oh, it absolutely can be used as an entry point. It's uh, in the same world, but it's a whole new group of people and new circumstances. Um, there's Again, there's stuff that will be familiar if you've played Sleeping Gods. There's stuff you'll recognize, but there's nothing that will be uh, confusing if you haven't played Sleeping Gods. So anything important will be explained again as it comes up, which uh, I guess might be slightly redundant if you've played the original game, but... Mostly it won't because it'll be, again, like a lot of things in the world have shifted and changed since the crew of the Manticore was there. Uh, so there's a there's some things in the world that uh, have different circumstances now. But absolutely, you could jump right into Distant Skies and, and not be confused by it at all and really enjoy the experience. It'll be it'll be a self-contained story. Okay, so regarding the tone of the game, um, will it be similar to um, Sleeping Gods? Will it be darker, more serious, more silly? How, how would you compare it? Uh, Tone-wise, it will be somewhat similar. So we're still going for that sort of adventure story slash slight horror elements feel to it. Uh, none of our games that we write are going to be that super dark just because of who we are as creators but uh, it is a more serious tone and also uh, in this one in the stories we're specifically trying to uh, flesh out the characters more and give more uh, personality and more like character arcs and like sort of have a more compelling central narrative in that way Uh, we tried to do that a little bit in the original game but there were only sort of a few character-based stories. We're trying to lean into that even further in Distance Guys and give uh, more like characters for players to get attached to and to see them like grow and learn and have their own goals and stuff going on in the world. And since there are less uh, base characters, you said five instead of nine, right? Yes. Nine is, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, that probably makes it uh, easier to spend more time on characters when you have less characters. Yes, exactly. And and an interesting thing for this one is uh, all of the sort of main crew members in Sleeping Gods are from our world who have been transported to this world of the Wandering Sea. In Distant Skies, one of your like main uh, party 
characters is actually from the world of the wandering sea and he's he's a local but he's going to be a primary part of your party and have his own uh interesting storylines so i have one question left regarding distant skies yeah does the plane land because like with sleeping gods it's it's pretty clear we drive around with the ship and we dock somewhere we we get into our small boat and uh, go to the shore how does it work with a plane yeah so actually the whole plane system is uh really interesting and definitely very different from the original sleeping gods so the plane does land when you like initially arrive in this world you kind of uh end up landing it in a specific spot that ends up sort of becoming a base camp but from there you can actually travel around on foot mostly so a lot of the world you're going to be traveling just like walking around but you can use the plane uh, to sort of as a fast travel system so there's a few different spots in the big atlas map that you can fly to and then sort of from there you can explore on foot a bit more um, and there's a whole mechanic for how that works with like refueling and having enough fuel to get places and how far you can travel on the plane and uh, even there's going to be in the storybook occasionally special stories that lead to new special places that you can only get to by the plane and uh, those will be like have unique requirements to fly over there to do that storyline uh, and so yeah basically you're not traveling everywhere on the plane but you can travel some places on the plane yeah that sounds pretty cool so um and i think uh, that is all the time we have for now um i'm really okay. looking forward to the crowdfunder um crowdfunding um and um, thank you for being with us and uh, thank yeah, you yeah this was God. delightful thank you yeah. very much. And thank, thank you, you all me. for listening to the last standee podcast you can catch us over at www.patreon.com slash the last or follow us as the last standee on twitter or subscribe on your preferred podcast app um is there some way uh, people can follow you or red raven games on social media yeah so you can uh go to our facebook page which is just red raven games uh you can follow us on twitter actually at red raven game in the singular for some reason we couldn't get the plural on that one uh or you can go to our website redravengames.com you can sign up for our newsletter there all right so and then it's Wonderful. farewell from audrey bye bye alexis from belgium au revoir brenna uh goodbye and uh, myself. Uh, and remember that the second E in Stand E is for Everwessend. Ooh.